When we look out at the universe, we see all sorts of systems from tiny single subatomic particle systems that might involve just a single electron or photon passing through some sort of quantum mechanical device or apparatus to huge cosmic scales where even, believe it or not, quantum mechanics can still play a major role. As much as we'd love to observe and experiment with everything, there are some times where what we need to do if we really want to understand going on is write simulations and make the universe here on a computer simulate itself. In the past, we've mostly been restricted by doing what we can do on a classical computer, something that uses zeros and ones as their means of storing information. But we're on the cusp of a new development of quantum computing that is poised to potentially revolutionize how we simulate and even how we think about our universe. What's that all about? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. For a long time, the idea of having an inherently quantum computer, of something that wasn't just restricted to zeros and ones, but could make mixed quantum states, where something wouldn't be in a definitive state, but would rather be in a superposition of all possible states until you measured it, that was, that was something that was not technologically feasible. But through a series of recent developments, including superconducting qubits, quantum error correction and huge investments into building the necessary infrastructure to have them and keep them in a quantum mechanically sound state, we're now entering the era where quantum computing can become a part of our day-to-day -day lives. And here to help guide us through that, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Ricardo Manenti. Ricardo got his PhD from the University of Oxford and currently works for Rigetti, one of the world's leading quantum computing companies. Ricardo, I'm so excited to have you here and welcome to the program. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's really wonderful. So. Let's pretend that um, me and our listeners, let's pretend that we don't know anything about computers at all. all. All I sort of know is, well, when I have a computer, it is a device that can encode information, usually in terms of zeros and ones or a binary format. And then whatever I'm storing, I can have certain operators act on this information. I can use operators like and, or or, or not, or if then, or certain things like that, where I could just sort of draw out a logical progression, where I could write out an algorithm in plain English, and what the computer does is in an automated fashion, it will calculate that algorithm for me, presumably at much higher speeds than uh, you know, a very analog computer like a human being would be able to do it. Is is that a fair view of what we would call a classical computer? Yeah, exactly. So as you explained, a classical computer uh, works uh, with a binary system. Information is encoded into strings of zeros and ones. And the operations that we can do on a classical computer are, as you mentioned, the AND, NOT, XOR, and so on. So everything that a, a classical computer does, like our laptop, 
is based on these operations. And classical computers are uh, very efficient uh, in solving uh, some problems. So we use them every day uh, in our daily life. And uh, now uh, the challenge is uh, to build computers that are more powerful than classical computers. They are based on, uh, on a new technology. And uh, these are quantum computers. The idea of quantum computers uh, started around the 80s when uh, scientists like Feynman, Bennett, uh, Benioff uh, started asking the question, is it possible to build a, much, a more powerful computer using the laws of quantum mechanics? Yeah, and that's that's really interesting to me because I was I was always of the opinion that if you had any physical problem at all that you could write down, that you could define, that you could quantify, uh, that is a problem that you can simulate on any computer, even a classical computer, to arbitrary accuracy. But with a classical computer, I think certain classes of problems um, are very difficult, which is to say, if you want to simulate them, it requires a lot of computing time, especially if you want to reach a certain level of precision and accuracy in your calculations. Is, is that correct? Are there any problems that you can envision that a classical computer would be unable to simulate? Or is it pretty much true that if you can write a problem down, you can simulate it on a classical computer? Yeah, I would like to answer this question in two ways. So first of all, there, there is a class of problems that a classical computer can solve in an efficient way. This class of problem is known as P. So these are the problems that a classical computer can solve with a polynomial uh, amount of resources. Other problems, and, and, and these problems in, are, uh, for example, multiplication, addition, and so on. Other problems, instead, are much more difficult to solve for a classical computer, and they're known as MP-complete problems. A uh, problem in this class is, for example, the traveling salesman problem. So this problem consists in uh, visit, uh, a person visiting uh, different cities, and the challenge is to find the uh, shortest path that connects all of the cities. When uh, the number of uh, nodes in this graph in, uh, increases uh, significantly, solving, solving this, finding the shortest path uh, uh, is very challenging for a classical computer. So, uh, uh, quantum com something that I want to be uh, I want to be very clear about is that quantum computers will not provide an exponential speed up for NP-complete problems. So quantum computers can solve uh, some problems more efficiently than classical computers, but is uh, widely accepted that uh, these are not NP-complete problems. So quantum computers will not be able to solve NP-complete problems in polynomial time. However, there are like other problems, specifically in science, uh, that quantum computers can can solve more efficiently than classical computers. So these problems include the simulation of the time evolution of a system. So what do I mean by that? So imagine that you have uh, a system with uh, some particles that could, they can be electrons, protons, neutrons, 
and you want to study the dynamics, the time evolution. So uh, you know the state of the particles at time zero, and you want to know what is the state of a system at time equal to seven seconds, for example. So you want to simulate the dynamics of a system, the time evolution. Uh, this requires uh, solving the Schrodinger equation, an equation that was discovered in the 20s uh, by Schrodinger. And solving this equation by, with a classical computer is very challenging. However, a quantum computer using uh, algorithms such as the trotterization, the cubitization, a quantum computer would be able to study the dynamics, simulate the time evolution of, of a system in a much more efficient way. So that this is, in my, in my opinion, the, uh, the prime example of where a quantum computer can uh, give a substantial advantage with respect to a classical computer. So uh, to summarize, quantum computers can offer a huge speed up for a specific class of problems, but they will not provide an exponential advantage for NP-complete problems. However, we will provide a polynomial advantage, which is a, a bit less, but it would probably be useful for, uh, for uh, large problems. But again, it will not provide an exponential advantage for NP-complete problems. That's really interesting, Ricardo. So let me let me see if I have this right. And I'm going to try to explain this back to you like I uh, like I understood what you were talking about. So you're saying that in general, when it comes to computation, uh, there are we could divide all of the problems into two classes of problems, what you call P which is something that you can solve in polynomial time, and what you call NP, which is something that, that you can't. So as an example of uh, something you can solve in polynomial time, you're talking about, you know, the four basic functions, square roots, logarithms, like the, the basic things that we learn in, you know, middle school and high school math. But you're saying there are these other classes of problems, like uh, the example you gave is what I know as the traveling salesman problem, which is someone has to go around to all of these different destinations, or maybe more appropriately, as we uh, are sort of in the holiday season while we're recording, uh, the Santa Claus problem, right? Santa Claus has to go and visit all the houses of all the children on earth and deliver presents. Um, so, What's the most efficient route for Santa Claus to take as far as hitting each house in the minimum amount of time or with the minimum amount of distance covered? Uh, and you're saying for those problems, for those NP problems, uh, quantum computing and classical computing, this is going to be hard for both of them. There's no trick you can use to say, aha, with a quantum computer, we're going to solve this all easy. No, it's hard on a classical computer and it's hard on a quantum computer. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one thing I would like to say is that uh, the only thing I would change about what you said is that uh, problems are not just divided into two classes, P and MP, but there are like many other classes that we haven't talked about. But uh, if we want to simplify, yes, these are the two most interesting uh, classes in uh, uh, complexity theory. Yes. Okay. So there are other classes, but we're 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 talking about those two classes, and when we do. Uh, we want to make sure that we understand that quantum computing is not going to help you solve NP-complete problems in, you know, in super fast amounts of time. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but there are classes of problems, and specifically, 
um, what you're saying is these are quantum mechanical analog problems. So problems where, you know, you would say, look, you're used to in your everyday like life, things being in a determinate state. If you uh, have a bag with a red ball and a green ball in there, um, if you mix them up and you pull out one of the balls, if it's red, you know the other one in there is green. Um, in quantum mechanics, this is not necessarily true. If you have two balls in there, it's possible that they will be in what we call a superposition of states, where one of them is part red and part green, and the other one is also part red and part green. But it's only when you take the act of making a measurement that you determine, okay, this ball was a superposition of red and green until I measured it, but now when I make that critical measurement, I can do that. And you need to use the rules of quantum mechanics to sort of calculate what those probabilities are as you move forward in time. And you can simulate this on a classical computer, but it's computationally expensive. Whereas if you had a quantum computer, something that could not only have a, a zero state or a one state, a red state or a green state, you would have something that could keep that superposition of states alive inside of it as you did your computations on it, as you performed your quantum computer operations on it. Um, and in that case, that's the type of system where you can get a really fast speed up or what some people have called a quantum advantage. So is that what we're considering as like the, the real motivation and the real best use case for why we would want quantum computers in general? Yeah, you explained this uh, very well. As you said, one key feature of quantum computers is definitely the superposition state. So if I have to answer the question, why is a quantum computer faster than a classical computer? I would answer like in this way. A classical computer can use um, a specific selection of gates that include the AND, XOR, NOT, and so on. A quantum computer can use those gates as well. So you could implement the, the XOR, NOT, AND on a quantum computer as well. But a quantum computer has also access to other gates that do not exist in classical computing, such as the Hadamard gate. So the Hadamard gate, when it's applied to a qubit that is in zero, it prepares a superposition state of zero and one. So going back to the analogy uh, of the ball, the ball is red, I apply the Hadamard gate on the ball, and all of a sudden the ball is both red and green at the same time. So the Hadamard gate does not exist in classical computing. But uh, in quantum computing, yes, you can uh, implement the Hadamard gate. You can uh, prepare a qubit into a superposition state. So now the question is, if I need to solve a problem such as the traveling salesman problem or addition, I need to sum two numbers, five and two. So five is one, zero, one, and two is one, zero. I need to add this uh, in a binary system. If I, add, if I need to add these two numbers together and find the solution, which is seven, one, 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 I can use, with a classical com computer, I will use uh, gates uh, such as the and, not, and soar. And suppose that 
I need 100 of these gates to find the solution. However, with a quantum computer, if I also, if I, since I have, I have access to other gates as well, such as the Hadamard gate, the C phase, the I-swap, and so on, since the spectrum of gates is a, a bit broader, I can solve this problem not using 100 gates, but 10 gates. So the, uh, this, is, this is probably the simplest way to explain why quantum computers can solve some problems uh, with a few uh, fewer gates, because we have like more gates that are accessible to us. And then going back to the question about quantum advantage and quantum supremacy. So quantum supremacy and quantum advantage are two different things. So quantum supremacy is uh, um, when a quantum computer can solve a mathematical problem faster than any classical computer in the world. That specific mathematical problem doesn't need to be useful. So back in 2019 and then also in 2020 and 2021, different groups around the world, including the Google group and also um, a group in China, showed quantum supremacy. So they showed that they could solve a problem faster than any classical computer in the world. So that specific problem, however, was uh, in a sense useless. It was uh, all about sampling a random circuit that was uh, going to reproduce the Porter-Thomas distribution. So, that is, so we have achieved quantum supremacy. We have shown that a quantum computer can solve a specific mathematical problem faster than a classical computer. However, we have never, nobody has ever shown quantum advantage yet. So quantum advantage is the point where a quantum computer can solve a useful mathematical problem uh, with, uh, uh, in, in less time than a classical computer with, uh, or with uh, you know, a, a, a small cost uh, compared to a, a classical computer. So we have not reached quantum advantage yet. And this is what uh, all the big companies, including Google, IBM, uh, Amazon, uh, Rigetti, uh, IonQ, SciQuantum, they want to achieve in this decade. So uh, we believe that with, uh, um, with uh, uh, 100 to 500 qubits, uh, with uh, a high fidelity two qubit gates, it's, it's, it's possible to reach a narrow quantum advantage. So that point where a quantum computer will be able to solve a useful problem with a fewer resources than a classical computer. Wow, that's really interesting. We're here talking quantum computing with Dr. Ricardo Menenti, and I'd like to pause for a moment while we acknowledge our sponsor. Today's episode of the Starts With a Bang podcast is brought to you by Avenues Online, the virtual campus of Avenues the World School. Avenues Online is an accredited tier one private school designed for students from toddler through 12th grade who want to pursue a world-class education freed from the constraints of a physical school. Learn alongside peers living on six continents and in more than 20 countries with a global faculty leading the way. Learn more at avenues.org slash SWAB. And now back to our show. So Ricardo, you've sort of posed this dichotomy between quantum supremacy, which is basically if a quantum computer can do anything, even the most useless thing, faster than a classical computer. But quantum advantage seems to be the real holy grail 
of quantum computing were to say, no, we can not only just solve a concocted problem, we can solve a useful problem in less time or with fewer resources or in a more efficient way than a classical computer ever could. And because, you know, we're, we're both physicists, that's where my mind immediately goes. You talked about the Schrodinger equation, but I think maybe, maybe the simplest analogy would be an experiment that we know as the Stern-Gerlach experiment. The Stern-Gerlach experiment says, look, a lot of these particles you deal with have this quantum mechanical property called spin, where, you know, in the most, in the simplest case where you have a spin one half particle, any, any good old fashioned fermion, uh, it can either be spin up or spin down. But the thing is, reality is three dimensional. So if I have a magnet that's oriented, say, uh, where the north magnet is up and the south magnet is down. If I pass a particle through that magnet, about 50% of them are gonna deflect upwards and about 50% of them are gonna deflect downwards because that will split them. That will cause the spin axis to align with the magnet and that will split them either into plus one or minus one states. Now, here's what I love about the Stern-Gerlach experiment. If I set up another magnet in that north-south up-down direction, if my particles have already split up, then when I pass it through that other up-down north-south magnet, they're all gonna keep splitting up, right? I determined the spin in that direction. But if in between that first magnet and that final magnet, I put a different magnet that was oriented, say, left-right with north and south, and I split those atoms again, or I split those particles again, now when they pass through that final magnet, they're again going to split up and down. It seems like I would have a big computational challenge. It would be computationally expensive to simulate this inherently quantum behavior on a classical computer. And my intuition tells me there's probably a series of quantum gates or a way that I could um, pose this problem in a uh, quantum computational sense, where I could pose this problem to a quantum computer where it would be able to solve it in fewer steps with a smaller number of operations than a classical computer. And are these the types of problems that we truly hope to achieve quantum advantage for? Is that what sort of is the physical motivation behind why we would want to simulate these systems and why quantum computers have the potential to be so powerful? Yeah, <clears throat> so the potential is definitely simulating quantum systems. So uh, quantum computers are very good at that. And uh, the idea, I would say that the, uh, uh, the big advantage will be seen in the simulation of, uh, uh, quant of, of systems in quantum chemistry. So uh, I would say that one, uh, for example, the Holy Grail uh, is uh, being able to simulate the Haber process, for example. So the Haber process is the process that humans use to produce ammonia. Uh, ammonia is a, is the molecule NH, NH3, and we produce ammonia by combining hydrogen and nitrogen. Uh, 
uh, with a procedure that is uh, very um, expensive. We use a catalyst that only works at 700, 800 degrees Celsius, whereas bacteria can produce ammonia uh, at room temperature. And we don't know exactly how they do that. So if we were able to simulate these, uh, um, these uh, chemical reaction, uh, to, so how hydrogen and nitrogen combine to form ammonia, then we will probably be able to develop a catalyst that works at a much lower temperature. So yes, definitely the advantage, so where quantum computers will actually provide an advantage with respect to classical computers, I would say is definitely in the field of quantum chemistry, so simulating the behavior of molecules. You were talking about the Stengard-like experiment, so you were talking about spins. Yes, quant quantum computers uh, would be able to simulate the, uh, uh, the dynamics of uh, uh, quantum systems uh, comprising particles with spins, and also it would uh, uh, help us understand the, uh, how yeah, molecules combine, the energy levels of molecule, being able to predict their behavior, these were definitely quantum computers will give, um, we, we, where we will see the benefits of quantum computing. Yeah, but it's very interesting to know that it isn't just for these simple idealized systems like with a Stern-Gerlach experiment or with a time evolution operator of a Schrodinger equation, um, that you're also talking about, no, there are these complex processes. Uh, there are things like protein folding, and there are things like uh, complex chemical reactions that quantum advantage could also play a tremendous role in giving us a speed up there. Um, so if you think about, go ahead, go ahead and tell me, uh, if I think about those systems, um, if there's any sort of quantum mechanical interaction at play, uh, do quantum computers have the potential to also give me a big speed up in those regimes? Yeah, so definitely. So um, when we want to study a molecule, for example, when we think about the simplest molecule, the simplest molecule is uh, H2, so hydrogen, simply two protons and two electrons uh, moving around these uh, protons. So this uh, system is very, very simple, and it cannot, it can, uh, we can study the hydrogen molecule and, uh, and we can... Uh, predict the energy levels of the hydrogen molecule. So the energy levels are simply the transition uh, frequencies of the molecule, meaning that if we send a photon, a particle of light against this uh, uh, molecule, that molecule will be excited uh, because there is like a specific transition on that uh, energy. So we can uh, study the energy levels of the hydrogen molecule simply with a piece of paper and a pen. We just need to solve the Schrodinger equation, the, uh, the time-independent Schrodinger equation, and in that way we can find the energy levels of the hydrogen molecule. But the problem is that when the molecule contains 50, 100, 200 electrons, it's pretty much impossible to solve the Schrodinger equation uh, uh, with a classical computer. Is a uh, the, the, so, uh, in the last uh, 60, 70 years, we have developed many uh, methods to study uh, molecules and uh, to uh, calculate their energy levels. And these methods are the Hartree-Fock, the Kappel cluster, the MRG, and so on. 
And all of these methods are based on some approximations, so such as the Born-Oppenheimer approximation, which says, look, the nuclei are very heavy, so they almost don't move. Instead, the electrons, they are much lighter, so they, they move much faster. So we're going to consider the nuclei fixed, and we are going to assume the electrons are the only particles that are moving in these systems. So with a series of uh, approximations, we are able to study molecules even with classical computers. However, since the, uh, however, quantum computers would be able to simulate the behavior of these molecules in a much more accurate way because quantum computers are, obey the laws of quantum mechanics themselves. So as Feynman said back in the 80s, if you want to simulate a quantum system such as a molecule, you should definitely use a quantum computer because that's a quantum system as well. So how would we do that? So if we want to simulate a molecule, a complex molecule with uh, thousands of electrons, yeah, we wouldn't be able to do that with a classical computer. We can only uh, find the, uh, we can only simulate the behavior of a molecule in an approximate way. So usually uh, classical computers Computers can uh, study molecules, uh, the behavior of molecules up to 100 electrons, but beyond that, we cannot really find like uh, interesting solutions with the uh, classical computers. So how would a quantum computer, uh, how would a quantum computer do that? So the idea would be, uh, I'm going to use some terms that are a bit technical, but I will try to explain them in a simple term. So if you want to study a molecule, you first need to uh, write the Hamiltonian of a molecule, meaning the Hamiltonian is the energy of a molecule. It's basically the kinetic energy of all of the electrons moving around and the potential energy. So how far the electrons are from the nuclei, the poten potential energy takes into account the fact that the electrons are at the same charge, so they're all negatively charged, so they repel each other. But they, but they're also attracted by the nuclei uh, because the nuclei are positively charged. So once you have the Hamiltonian, the energy of a system, uh, you, have, you have written down this uh, equation, the Hamiltonian of a system, the energy of a molecule, you can map that Hamiltonian into a quantum computer with a bijective function, so an isomorphism. So in simple terms, you can map the problem of your molecule into a co quantum computer directly and you can study the behavior of this molecule in a very accurate, accurate way because your quantum computer behaves exactly in the same way as the electrons in that molecule. So that's why it makes sense to study molecules, the behavior of molecules using a quantum computer because the connection between a quantum computer and a molecule is one-to-one. Uh, -one. Uh, there's like an isomorphism between these uh, two systems. And so if you find, if you can simulate the molecule on, on, uh, on your quantum computer, you get a very good description of what the molecule does in real life. So that's really interesting. That, that tells me when you use the word isomorphism, if I were speaking to a, a lay person, I would just say, oh, he means that this physical problem that he's interested in solving is mathematically equivalent 
to this other formulation that we can not only write down, but we can simulate it on a quantum computer. And it's those cases that I think that uh, that you're trying to tell me that's where quantum advantage is a real possibility. And that's where we should be focusing our efforts on, hey, these are the classes of problems we should be trying to use a quantum computer to solve, because those are the kinds of problems that on a quantum computer, it would be relatively computationally inexpensive to solve them. And also, there's a direct physical analog to the physical system we're interested in. So uh, when you talk about electrons in a complex molecule, that seems like the ideal testing ground for, ooh, if we can simulate it and we can make a quantum computer, you know, with enough qubits and with a long enough decoherence time, uh, that's going to give us the answer in a severely sped up way from how we'd have to, you know, I won't even say solve it, but approximate it using a classical computer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you mentioned an important word, word here, which is decoherence. So something that our uh, like the people listening to this uh, podcast should know is that um, quantum computers make mistakes, which is something that we're not very used to. When we use uh, our laptop, we expect our laptop to work and to not make mistakes. However, a quantum computer can make mistakes. And, uh, and I will try to explain this like in simple terms. So uh, when uh, we have a bit uh, in a classical computer and we, uh, that bit is in uh, state zero and we switch the state of that bit from zero to one, that uh, bit will stay in one forever. However, when a qubit uh, is prepared in one, that uh, system will tend to go back to zero in a short time scale. So that is called the relaxation time, T1. So the relaxation time tells you uh, approximately in how much time a system prepared in one is going to go back to zero uh, due to spontaneous emission. So you can think of a simple hydrogen atom. You have uh, an electron orbiting around the proton, so that's our hydrogen atom. You excite the electron from uh, orbital 1 to orbital 2, and then the electron will go back to orbital 1 in a short period of time. So uh, that is T1, the relaxation time. So the relaxation time uh, for superconducting qubits is around 50 to 200, 500 microseconds. So approximately, let's say, 100 microseconds. For other quantum computing systems, such as ion traps, the uh, relaxation time is a bit uh, longer. So maybe like a few milliseconds, one second. And uh, so one uh, could argue, but well, these quantum computers are useless. Uh, if I prepare my qubit in one, that qubit is going to go back to zero in no time. So uh, how can I do? How, how can I even do a, co a computation if uh, my qubit dies in uh, 100 microseconds? The idea is that as long as your computation is very fast, meaning that your gates, such as the Hadamard, the knot, and so on, are very fast, fast, such as like 20 nanoseconds, 50 nanoseconds, 
then 50, one, uh, 100 microseconds is long enough to do your computation. So the important thing here is the ratio between T1 and your gate time. Uh, so as a rule of thumb, the uh, ratio between T1 and the gate time should be approximately 1,000 so that you can do a computation with an accuracy of 99 to 99.9% .9 uh, fidelity. I see. So would I, would I be smart to think about uh, this relaxation time? Not like I think about uh, very sensitive particle physics experiments, right? In a very sensitive particle physics experiment, I would have to worry, oh, uh, you have thermal noise and that could trigger a false event, or you have background uh, radioactive decays and when one of those passes through your detector, uh, that could trigger a, a false positive event or could change the state of a particle. Or if you have cosmic rays coming in from space into your experiment, that could cause your detector go, to go off when you're seeing something that's not an event you're interested in. Are you telling me that, yeah, those things happen in quantum computers, but that's not the big, the big problem with them. The big problem is more like uh, half-life, is more like if you just imagine decaying from your metastable state to a more stable state, that there's a characteristic time scale for that. And if you are trying to do a computationally expensive thing with a quantum computer where the amount of time it takes to complete your computation is as long as or longer than this relaxation time, you're not going to get reliable answers because some of your prepared quantum states will naturally relax and just give you uh, noise or the ground state and you will lose the results of your quantum computation that you so sorely needed. Yeah, exactly. So. Um... Uh, that's right. So if your computation is longer than the relaxation time, then the answer that you will get from your quantum computer will not be reliable. So then uh, how do you solve this problem? And so here comes quantum error correction. Quantum error correction is uh, a field that was developed back in the 90s by different uh, scientists, including Shore, Steen. And the idea is uh, pretty simple. So uh, the simplest way to explain quantum error correction is uh, thinking about a classical analogy. So if uh, I need to tell you uh, a piece of information, so I need to tell you that my, um, my age is uh, 34. So instead of saying just 34, I could say 34, 34, 34. If I say that three times, uh, for sure you will get this information right. So the idea is to uh, repeat the same information multiple times. So instead of encoding uh, like uh, the information into a bit and just uh, send you a bit like zero, I'm gonna send you zero, zero, zero. So uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this way, I will decrease the chances that you will get the wrong information. Because for example, if one of these bits uh, it goes from zero to one, you will not receive the message zero, zero, zero. You will receive a message, for example, zero, one, zero. But since just one of the bits has uh, uh, switched from, has, has gone from zero to one, you will conclude that 
probably the message I wanted to send you was simply zero, zero, zero. So this redundancy helps you to correct the mistakes uh, that a quantum computer uh, uh, could do. That seems like a good idea, but there's a cost with that too, isn't there? If I want to, you know, send the information over in triplicate to make sure that if there's an error, you know, we'll at least have be likely to have two systems that don't have an error. But doesn't that also cost me, uh, you need additional qubits. And if you want to send it three times over, then you need three times as many qubits. And qubits are expensive. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is the difference between physical qubits and logical qubits. So the idea is, if I want a logical qubit, which means an ideal qubit, a qubit that when it's prepared in one, will never go back to zero, then I will use, uh, let's say, 100 physical qubits to, co to encode the information of just one logical qubit that never fails. So this uh, is uh, done with... Uh, uh, quantum error correcting codes, such as the surface code. The surface code is probably the most popular one. In the idea of the surface code is to use 1,000 physical qubits to encode the information of one logical qubit, a qubit that would uh, never fail. A qubit, uh, so the idea would be that, uh, let's suppose that the uh, lifetime of these uh, 1,000 physical qubits is around 100 microseconds. If you combine all of these uh, uh, physical qubits and you uh, implement a quantum error correcting code, you can uh, um, obtain a logical qubit with an infinite lifetime. This is true as long as your operations, so your gates, can be implemented with high fidelity uh, above a threshold, which is approximately 99.5%. So as long as your single qubit gates and two qubit gates have a fidelity above 99.5%, then you can uh, successfully implement this uh, quantum error correcting code. Okay, so definitely the overhead is uh, huge. So I'm telling you that you need uh, between 1,000 to 10,000 qubits to encode one logical qubit. That's a huge overhead. And and just for just for a little perspective, Ricardo, can you tell us uh, the largest quantum computer at present that has the most number of physical qubits? How how many physical qubits does the largest quantum computer at the end of 2023 have? Yeah, so I would say there is uh, around 1,000. So the, uh, IBM announced uh, uh, just like a week ago that they um, cooled down a device uh, based on superconducting qubits with 1,000 qubits. And then uh, a week ago, a professor at, the, uh, at Harvard, uh, Misha Lukin, uh, announced that he uh, was able to operate on 1,000 uh, cold atoms and create 48 logical qubits. And then uh, there are like other companies uh, that, uh, uh, so for example, uh, SciQuantum here in Palo Alto uh, mentioned that, uh, recently said that they want to achieve uh, 1 million qubits by the end of a decade. Uh, but I would say that the average number of uh, qubits that uh, quantum computing com companies work with are between 50 to 200 qubits right now. 
that's like the average. And um, I also want to mention one important thing, which is that, uh, yes, we need uh, 1,000 or 10,000 physical qubits to encode the information of one logical qubit. However, uh, quantum the field of quantum error correction is developing. And uh, recently, uh, a very interesting paper uh, by IBM uh, was uh, published, and they uh, they were saying that um, if you have like long long range coupling between uh, your qubits, you can probably uh, be able to uh, use only 200 qubits to encode the information of one logical qubit. So that would uh, drastically reduce the overhead from 1,000 or 10,000 using the surface code down to 200. So quantum error correction is definitely a research field. Uh, every year, uh, new codes are discovered that are more efficient. But definitely, uh, for now, there is at least a, a, um, a factor of 10 or, or 100 be between physical qubits and logical qubits. That's really interesting. So um, what you're saying is, uh, yes, you have your physical qubits, you have to prepare them, and you have to understand, very importantly, what relaxation time is and how it works for your qubits. It's important to uh, make multiple copies and do error correction, which is its own field uh, and requires its own algorithms to do. But by doing that, you can maintain logical qubits for long periods at at a time, uh, just at the expense of having to use many physical qubits to encode them. Um, but this is this is in theory how you can address these complex quantum mechanical problems that quantum computers will be ideally suited for. When you look ahead, when you try and imagine what's coming ahead down the line for quantum computers, do you sort of envision a future where you have these hybrid quantum classical computers that use traditional, you know, classical computers for all of the types of problems where you won't have quantum advantage in your interesting problems, but then switching over to a quantum computational part where where you do get that advantage um and so you would have sort of this hybrid where you use classical for most of it you use quantum for some of it and overall that's what gives you the highest performance when you're making sort of your your computations yeah exactly so i would say that quantum computers will probably not we will they will not be used to run powerpoint or excel so we will definitely use classical computers for those those tasks. Would would that would the analogy be like oh that's like using uh, that's like using fundamental quantum electrodynamics to model how your light turns on when you flip the light switch? Like yeah, you can do it in the purely inherent quantum mechanical sense, but also uh, if you just had a basic physics education and you understood V equals IR and you knew Ohm's law, that's perfectly sufficient for this class of problems. So the idea that we'll all have quantum computers someday and we'll never need classical computers again, uh, that, that would just be a bad decision, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So uh, I would say that 
many problems uh, can be easily and efficiently solved by classical computers. So, uh, for example, our laptops, and they will not be uh, solved by quantum computers. It will not be there will not be any reason, it will not be reasonable to use a quantum computer to solve those kind of problems. So yes, I envision quantum computers to be installed close to supercomputers. So they could be a support to high performance computing, HPC. And uh, definitely this is like also something that HPC companies are looking at, installing a quantum computer uh, close to their servers to speed up uh, their computation and uh, something that is uh, I would say interesting about the field of quantum computing is that every year new uh, uh, new breakthroughs uh, and new ideas are developed and you clearly see that the field is uh, going forward and I would say that uh, uh, definitely like the next uh, next five years uh, uh, in the next decade, for sure, we will see the benefits of quantum computing uh, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in our world. Uh, I would say that uh, the progress in quantum computing is uh, so impressive and that, uh, we that we will see the benefits of this uh, uh, field, I would say, pretty soon. And... Um, and yes, so this is like definitely like uh, something that excites me, something that should excite all of the scientific community, because finally we will be able to approach problems that we were that we otherwise would not be would never be able to 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 tackle. And that's that's really like phenomenal, right? That you have these problems that are presently intractable, even with classical computers and the tremendous amount of power we have. Um, and this is because, like you said, uh, the system is too complicated to effectively model. There are just too many things to keep track of that are interplaying with each other and unless you are approaching this with an inherently quantum mechanical point of view, um, you're really just calculating things that, uh, I'll say, that blow up or that that generate too many possibilities for your classical computer to hold in its memory, kind of regardless of how much memory you have. But you're saying, look, there are many problems like that where if... I had a quantum computer, there is this what you called uh, isomorphism between the physical system I want to solve and what's easily simulatable on a quantum computer. And so that means if we can find that you know, thing to write down, if we can find that problem to pose to a quantum computer and we have enough qubits, enough physical qubits to make enough logical qubits and good enough error correction, now at last we can get the answer. So when you're talking quantum advantage, you're not just talking about like, oh, there's a tremendous speed up here. You're talking about solving things uh, practically and maybe even, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth and say easily with a quantum computer, uh, where from a pragmatic point of view, a classical computer will never be able to solve those problems. Yeah, and what excites me is that um, I would say that there is no reason why humanity should not try building a quantum computer. 
so there is not really a like a huge obstacle so there is not like there is not an equation saying it's not possible to build a quantum computer and i think humans will always try uh they will, they will they will never stop trying building a quantum computer because uh, the uh, promise what uh, quantum computers promise is uh, so important that uh, is definitely like worth trying maybe that is going to take like two years five years ten years but i would say that there is no reason to stop trying um and that's like in my opinion very fascinating uh the development and um uh, and what we could can achieve going back to what you were saying before yes like uh, the reason why it's difficult to, to simulate a quantum system using a classical computer is because uh, for example if you have like 10 particles and you want to simulate the dynamics of these uh, 10 particles then uh, pretty much what you need to do is to multiply matrices together and these matrices are going to have two to the power of 10 columns and two to the power of 10 rows. And these are big matrices, but you can still multiply these matrices together with uh, a laptop. But once you get to 25 particles, yeah, multiplying matrices with uh, uh, two to the power of 25 rows and two to the power of 25 columns is not that easy. So that's why a laptop can simulate uh, anything that a quantum computer can do with 25 qubits, approximately, so that's like the threshold. And uh, about if you want to uh, simulate like a quantum computer with a 50, 60 qubits, then you would need like a supercomputer. So that's like where the threshold is. So whenever you think about a quantum computer, you can you can simply do this analogy that a quantum computer with 25 qubits can be easily simulated by a laptop but once you get to 50 100 200 qubits then definitely uh, simulating that uh, system using a laptop is uh, pra practically impossible obviously with some caveats including the connectivity of a quantum computer the fidelity of a single and two qubit gates the readout fidelity and so on but like I don't want to get in too much into the details, but uh, definitely like an ideal quantum computer with 100 qubits is, is impossible to simulate with a, with a laptop. No, and this this makes a lot of sense because uh, you know I want I want my listeners to remember that numbers don't always go like one two three four five. Sometimes they go like power laws, uh, and sometimes they go like exponentials. And sometimes they go like combinatorics, where those are like your factorials. Um, so if I had, say, 25 particles in my system and I say, oh, I've just got a 2 to the 25 here and a 2 to the 25 there and I'm going to multiply them together. Yeah, I can do that on a laptop and it'll take all of my laptop's energy, but I can do that computation. Then if I want to go from 25 to 26, well, 2 to the 26 times 2 to the 26, that's another factor of 4. I need a computer that's four times as powerful as the one I have now just to add one more element. But for a quantum computer, that's not true. To go from 25 to 26, I just need one more logical qubit. So at some point, 
you know, you sort of reach this turning point between, look, what do I need? Do I need a thousand logical qubits? Well, I can build a quantum computer to do that. Or I can take, well, let's see, if it was 2 to the 1,000 versus 2 to the 25, oh, I just need a computer that's 2 to the 75 times 2 to the 75 times more powerful than what I have today. And that's when you start talking about like, okay, like now I need a computer that leverages every subatomic particle in our local corner of the universe to simulate it. And, and I'm not going to be able to do that. I can't build something that computationally expensive. But with a quantum computer, if I could just have a few thousand logical qubits, I can simulate that problem. And that seems like, that seems like the real, like, oh, that's where we're really going to start to see the advantage, that you have these problems that would be practically intractable otherwise, but with the right type of quantum computer that can hold enough logical com logical qubits, um, now I can not only approach it, but I can start to get a, a solution to these problems uh, in relatively short order. So, and, and here now comes like the next step. So why don't we have com quantum computers right now with one million qubits? So why are we still, uh, our quantum computers contain only like 100 qubits or 200 qubits and so on. So what's the challenge? So something I want to make super clear is that you can build a quantum computer in many different ways. Rigetti, Google, IBM, Amazon, they all use superconducting qubits. Other companies such as IonQ, uh, they use uh, ion traps. Other companies like SciQuantum, they use photonic chips. And then uh, other companies like Atom Computing or the group of Misha Looking uh, at Harvard, they use uh, cold atoms. So there are like, different technologies to build a quantum computer. Building a quantum computer with one million qubits is definitely like the holy grail. And that is going to take like uh, probably like other, other like 10 years, I think. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So the, I, I expected you to say a much larger number than that. And you're saying, no, 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 I think we can get to about a million qubits in a decade. Is that is that correct? So I would say that definitely, like, uh, we are going to reach 1,000 qubits by the end of this decade. And then uh, I will say that uh, I, just one or two breakthroughs are needed so that we can uh, scale that technology from 1,000 qubits to a million qubits. So I want to be a bit more specific. So now I want to explain what the challenges are in building a quantum computer with 1 million qubits using superconducting qubits, which is uh, the technology that the company I work for is using. So at Rigetti, I designed our quantum computer with 84 qubits. It, it was like a very exciting work that took like one one year, one year and a half. And now uh, we are working on this 84 qubit quantum computer and we are calibrating the device so that we can deploy the device uh, at the end of the year. So the challenge is uh, pretty simple. Uh, when you build a quantum computer with superconducting qubits, you have to imagine a piece of silicon with some uh, pieces of uh, aluminum on top. So a uh, superconducting qubit is uh, simply two pieces of metal 
connected by a junction. These two pieces of metal are sitting on top of uh, silicon. Okay, let's suppose that on one piece of metal you have 1,000 electrons and on the other piece of metal you have 500 electrons. If one electron jumps from one side to the other, so these are two pieces of metal are connected by a junction. If one electron jumps from one side to the other side of a junction, on uh, one piece of metal you're going to have 999 electrons, on the other piece of metal you're going to have 501 electrons. So that's what, that's what we call state one. If the electron jumps back, we, we are gonna have 1,000 electrons on the left, 500 electrons on the right, and that's state zero. So that's one superconducting qubit. So a superconducting qubit is just two pieces of metal connected by a junction. This uh, superconducting qubit does not work at room temperature. You have to place this uh, chip inside a, a very special fridge that costs around $1 million. And this fridge is going to go down at a temperature of 10 millikelvin, so 0.01 Kelvin, approximately minus 273 degrees Celsius. It takes 24 hours for the fridge to reach that temperature. And once the fridge has reached that temperature, you can start calibrating the device, which means that you have some room temperature electronics outside the fridge, which is connected to the chip inside the fridge with some cables, you're going to send an electrical pulse down the cable. The electrical pulse is going to reach the qubit, and it's going to push the electron from one side to the other side of a junction. So if the electrical pulse that you send down the cable is 100 nanoseconds long, and the amplitude of the pulse is 1 volt, and the frequency is 5 gigahertz, let's say, the electron is going to go from one side to the other side of a junction. And so you have created the state one. If you want to create the superposition state, zero plus one, you just need to change the amplitude of the pulse. So instead of sending a pulse that is 100 nanoseconds long with an amplitude of one volt, you will, you will send a pulse that is 100 nanoseconds long but with an amplitude of 0.5 volts. In that way, the electron is not going to jump all the way to the other side of a junction, but it's going to go into a superposition state of 0 and 1. So now here, uh, here is the challenge. If you want to build a quantum computer with uh, 300 qubits, you need a very big fridge, and the fridge can cost between uh, 3 to $5 million. And then you need many cables to connect your room temperature instrumentation to the qubits inside the fridge. And the cost of these cables can range between between four and eight million dollars. So a system to operate a quantum computer based on superconducting qubits with 300 qubits can cost up to 10 million dollars. So here, so definitely, uh, uh, this is not scalable. So if you want to uh, build a quantum computer with one million qubits based on superconducting qubits, you would need a giant fridge with a uh, many cables. So definitely there are like some solutions to this problem. Now, now Ricardo, I want to ask you, does, uh, do all of the approaches to quantum computers suffer for this? For example, if I wanted to build a quantum computer uh, with photonics, or if I wanted to build a quantum computer using ions in a Paul trap, um, do I suffer from that same, that same problem still, or is this unique to superconducting qubits? 
I would say that all technologies have their pros and cons because otherwise uh, we would have a one million cubic quantum computer today. So if uh, there were there was like a technology that was uh, much better than any other technology, we would already see that. But all technologies have some pros and cons. I'm talking specifically about superconducting qubits because I'm an expert of this uh, field. But I would say there are definitely other challenges in other approaches as, as well. So for ion traps, I guess uh, one, uh, um, one challenge is the fact that to operate two qubit gates, you would need to move one ion from one side to another, and that takes time. Another challenge, for example, for cold atoms is that when you move a cold atom from one side to another, you also might lose the atom. So that's another problem, that when you trap these atoms, then it could happen that during your computation you lose an atom. So you don't get the right solution to your problem because during the computation an atom got lost because maybe it was hit by an oxygen molecule. So only maybe 0.5% or 1% of the times your computation is correct because you have not lost any atom during the computation. But you don't have, for example, this problem with superconducting qubits because superconducting qubits are stable in a sense that they are just pieces of metal patterned on top of silicon using photolithography or e-beam lithography. So going back to the challenges of superconducting qubits, definitely uh, the large amount of cables needed, that's definitely a challenge. So how do you solve that problem? So uh, uh, different companies are thinking about um, solving this problem by moving the room temperature electronics inside the fridge. So in that way, you don't need all of those cables to operate the quantum computer. You simply put a classical computer next to the quantum computer at 10 millikelvin to operate your quantum computer so that you can remove all of those cables. You only need a few cables to operate the classical computer at 10 millikelvin and the classical computer is a chip sitting next to your quantum computer that, um, that uh, controls the operations on the quantum computer. The problem is that uh, transistors, uh, which are like these uh, small devices used uh, to um, build the classical computers, they don't, they don't work at 10 millikelvin. So tra transistors are based on the PN junction that does not work at 10 millikelvin. So a big challenge is, uh, how do we build classical computers that can be used to operate quantum computers to send these electrical pulses so that our qubits can go from zero to one and so on? How do we build these classical machines that can operate at 10 millikelvin as well? So uh, that's like a challenge. If we can uh, control our quantum computers with uh, electronics that works at 10 millikelvin, we would uh, be able to remove uh, uh, all of those cables from a fridge, and that would be a big, um, a big advantage for sure. There is a company called the SIC that uh, is uh, trying to solve this problem. So they are only focusing on uh, building electronics for uh, that can control quantum computers at 10 millikelvin. That's really interesting. It sounds like what you're talking about is uh, analogous with what uh, I learned uh, back in the 
20th century when we were talking about building uh, digital to analog converters, that you would make these digital signals, but you'd want to output an analog signal so that your analog devices could use them, but, but that were made with that digital level of precision. And it sounds like that's kind of what you want now, except it's not digital and analog, it's quantum and classical, where you want your classical computer to be able to communicate with and control communication with the quantum computer, uh, but you, you need to overcome some hurdles to make them play nice together. Yeah, yeah. And obviously there also other challenges that I've not mentioned. So for example, when you build a quantum computer based on superconducting qubits, you have your chip sitting inside your fridge at 10 millikelvin, and then you have like cosmic rays coming from the sun, and then you have muons. And oh, we do have all of those particle physics problems I talked about earlier. After all, they you, you're not immune to them. Yeah, exactly. You have like, for example, a muon or like a cosmic ray, a uh, uh, very uh, gamma ray that hits your substrate. So it goes, uh, uh, it hits uh, the silicon substrate. It produces a lot of phonons. These uh, phonons interact with the Cooper pairs in your aluminum. They break the Cooper pairs and uh, they form uh, like uh, unpaired electrons. One of these electrons can tunnel through the junction and then that cause decoherence. So uh, one solution to that problem would be to uh, place the fridge on the ground uh, like uh, Grand Sasso or like uh, in other labs on the ground or another solution would be to uh, shield the fridge uh, using uh, lead bricks uh, or like other um, other platforms so yeah so that uh, that is another challenge uh, another challenge would be that uh, yeah uh, superconducting qubits are pretty big uh, they're like one millimeter in size and one challenge will be definitely to decrease the size of these uh, qubits. So something that I would like to be very clear about is that quantum computing is not about making the transistors smaller, but creating these uh, qubits that work very differently from a uh, transistor. And in the case of superconducting qubits, these uh, qubits are quite big. They're like one millimeter in size, whereas the smallest transistor, I think, uh, is around five nanometers. Yeah, I read that they're trying to push down to uh, silicon chips that have two nanometer separations between different junctions. And this seems like also one of those instances where the speed of light is not your friend, that it's finite. And so if you have to separate your, you know, your logical qubits or anything else by more distance, by more physical space, that means it takes longer for a light signal to travel between them. Uh, so that, that also seems like, look, if I only have, you know, a hundred microseconds to get my whole computation done and my qubits are a millimeter apart, well, light is still going to move at 300,000 kilometers a second and electrical signals, even if they're superconducting, can't move faster than that. Um, it sounds like that's, that's a limitation that you have to reckon with. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, th uh, these are like some challenges, but uh, what I would like to mention is that uh, these uh, challenges, uh, in a sense, they can be tackled. Like, so we are uh, thinking about 
how to solve these problems. These are very hard engineering problems, but I would say that there's not like a, 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 like a block, like something that uh, almost like an equation that tells you you cannot solve these. It's a very difficult engineering problem, but uh, I think uh, these problems can be uh, solved with time, but they can be solved. You're saying these aren't these aren't theoretically impossible problems. They're they're difficult problems, but we know the physics of how this works, and there are no uh, there are no fundamental physical restrictions on on how you can do this. So so some clever person will come along and discover this, and then when they do, everyone will adopt that technology, and then this won't be the same barrier that it is today. Yeah. So uh, an analogy that I like to make is when we were trying when. I uh, humans were trying to figure out how to fly. So we started with air balloons. But then soon we discovered that that was not like a very efficient way to go from point A to point B. And then uh, airplanes were built and so on. So I would say that uh, it's like pretty much the same kind of like uh, progress. Uh, like right now uh, we are building these quantum computers that are very small with a limited number of qubits. that are affected by noise. and I would say that these are our air balloons right now, but uh, a few years from now, I would say that uh, we will uh, be able to finally uh, build airplanes that are going to go much faster than air balloons, are going to be much safer, and uh, are gonna, going to give us the advantage, advantage that we're looking for. I see. And when we look back 30 years from now and we see like now we're using the equivalent of turbofan engines to power our quantum computers instead of our airplanes, uh, all of that stuff is going to look as quaint as those old biplanes and triplanes from the early 20th century. Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you this. If I were a young person 25 years ago, uh, I could have had a brilliant money-making career going into just classical computing, going into computer engineering, computer programming, hardware, software, any of those aspects. Um, I, I could have had a great career if I had made that choice. Now, do you see sort of that same potential there for people, high school, college, grad student age today, that if they want to have a lucrative and successful career that the field of quantum computation offers that same, you know, what you look at today as seemingly limitless potential? Um, and if so, uh, what sort of advice would you give to a young person who was interested in that? Yeah, so this is the, the answer to your first question is uh, yes, definitely yes. So uh, quantum computing is something that is going to stay for like decades. Uh, is a marathon, and we have we have only covered 100 meters. We've had like other 42 kilometers in front of us. So other like for sure, over like 20, 30 years of uh, research and development to finally achieve one million qubits. So definitely, if you are like a young uh, student and you're fascinated by quantum physics, quantum mechanics, quantum computing, definitely this is like the right field for you because you can definitely build a career around quantum computing. Now, quantum computing will stay with us for the next 30 or 40 years for sure. There is like a lot to do, 
many difficult problems. So the advice that I would give is definitely, uh, if you're fascinated about this uh, field, definitely uh, you should do like an undergrad in physics, uh, mathematics, or computer science, and then uh, uh, probably also uh, a PhD in this uh, field uh, that would be very valuable so that you can actually test new ideas and uh, try and see yourself why this field is so difficult. And then uh, I would say that uh, a company, but like many companies right now that uh, work in this uh, field and these companies are doing like a very good research and uh, many good papers are coming out from these, uh, from these companies. And I would say that uh, uh, working in a company uh, in the quantum computing industry is uh, is like very, I would say, yeah, fascinating because uh, you get to work with uh, brilliant people. Um, so definitely, is a field where uh, the scientists uh, are very very good, and uh, the work they are doing is uh, is impressive. And yeah, so I would say that you sh uh, this is what I would say to the people interested in this field. Yeah, definitely follow your passion. Try to do the difficult things. So try to acquire those skills and make your profile unique. So try to get into, like, if you get into quantum computing, try to, uh, and you're like still young, like in your 20s, try to study, like, and acquire those skills are like technical because uh, that is what is going to in a sense make a difference uh, uh, a few years from now right and i i don't like to restrict people based on age i i always say it's about uh it's about being a uh early career or late career person not about your age so let's let's imagine that at some point um either recently or maybe not so recently, uh, someone was an undergrad and either finished or is finishing a degree in a related field like physics or quantum chemistry or something where they, they have experience with these things. If, if this person then wanted to go on uh, to get a PhD, to have a career in quantum computation, uh, what would be the best way for them to get started? Is there is there a book they should be learning from? Is there a, a collection of articles or resources that they should use to inform themselves? Are there are there types of classes that are offered either uh, in real 3D space or in or offered virtually that they should be taking. Uh, if someone out there was listening to this and said, I want to get into quantum computing, uh, what would be your advice for how they should go about doing that? Okay, uh, so definitely there are like a lot of resources online, uh, including uh, courses. Some of them are free. Some of them, uh, I think I need, you need to pay uh, a small amount of money. And then definitely like going uh, like uh, once you've uh, you, you have finished an undergrad, you can uh, for example look for a quantum computing company and apply for a job, or you can start a PhD. But I would also like to mention that I recently finished uh, writing a textbook about quantum computing. Uh, it took uh, almost nine years to write this uh, textbook, and I would say that this is like a very valuable resource. So if you're interested in quantum computing and you want to 
learn this field like in detail. So all of the technical aspects. Definitely my book is a very good resource. Uh, I wrote this book with a friend of mine that works at IBM. We started this project back in 2014. So we signed the contract with the Oxford University Press in 2014. And finally, only a few months ago, the uh, book has been published uh, by the Oxford, Oxford University Press and can be bought online, either on Amazon on, or on the Oxford University Press website. Well, that's so exciting. Ricardo, will you tell us the name of this book? And can I ask, did you start writing this book back when you were a graduate student? So the title of the book is Quantum Information Science. It's 700 pages long, and it, it contains 14 chapters. I started writing this book the first week of my PhD at the University of Oxford. And at that time, I was a bit naive. I didn't know how much I didn't know. I thought that it would have taken like four or five years to write a book. I remember that our editor uh, told us that it would have taken between six or seven years. I was a bit naive. I thought, yeah, come on, in four or five years, I'm going to be done. But then while I was writing the book, I realized how much I didn't know and how difficult that was. So not only you need to understand these concepts really well, but you also need to find the easiest way possible to explain these concepts to a person that has never studied this uh, uh, subject before. So also the way you explain uh, things is very important. So it's uh, very exciting that uh, now the book has been released. Uh, we have received uh, uh, very positive feedback uh, by our readers. And uh, hopefully this book will be used uh, by uh, universities uh, around the US and in Europe or also other parts of the, of the world to study quantum computation. So to teach quantum computation to uh, master students. So the level of a book is, uh, you know, people that just finished an undergrad in the US uh, or like they're doing uh, a master in Europe. Uh, so just like, you know, um, when you're like about to start a PhD. So that's like the target. So we assume that the readers are uh, familiar with calculus, linear algebra. Uh, however, we do include chapters about linear algebra and quantum mechanics in the first chapters of the book. And the book covers a lot of topics. So it starts with a gentle introduction to uh, complexity classes, uh, computational models, the Turing machine, the non-deterministic Turing machine, the probabilistic Turing machine, a quantum Turing machine. And then we cover linear algebra, quantum mechanics. And then we move on to advanced quantum mechanics. So density operators, quantum maps, decoherence. We also explain quantum algorithms. We have an entire chapter about entanglement. And we have a chapter about quantum simulation of the dynamics, quantum simulation of the eigenvalues of a Hamiltonian. And then at the end of the, of the book, we have uh, two chapters on superconducting qubits that teach, that show you how to build a quantum computer using superconducting qubits, which is uh, pretty much like my, my expertise. So what I do here at Rigetti. That's pretty exciting. I would be willing to bet that when you started this book back in 2014, uh, that you really couldn't have envisioned uh, the topics and the depths of expertise you would have when writing those final chapters. 
Yeah, so uh, that is true. So when I wrote some chapters back in 2014, and then uh, years later, I had to uh, write those chapters again, in a sense, because like the amount of information that I that I discovered, or, like also the field, you know, has moved. Uh, the field has made like some uh, uh, some progress from like 2014. So new things were discovered. And so uh, I had to shift the focus of a chapter from one so from one topic to another. So yeah, definitely uh, we had to revisit some chapters that we wrote like uh, years ago. And I was uh, very lucky to write this uh, chapter with uh, Mario Motta. He is a very brilliant scientist. He is a theoretical physicist. Physicist. He is an expert of uh, uh, many body physics. So. He's very good at uh, in, uh, in quantum chemistry. He wrote even he wrote some reviews about quantum chemistry, and I was very lucky to write this book with him because uh, uh, whenever I was stuck with an equation or whenever I was like uh, I couldn't uh, derive like uh, an equation, uh, working with, with him was very valuable, and uh, he always had like the the uh, he was always. You always had like the uh, the right solution, like how to find the the right solution to a problem, and uh, it's uh, very uh, it was very important that we managed to collab collaborate for uh, these uh, nine years, and we kept in touch uh, for this uh, long journey. I would say both of us when we started, we both didn't know how much time this was going to take. It was a lot of work. It was very difficult, but I'm very proud of it. Well, that's that's really wonderful. That also sounds like it was a very uh, fruitful and educational collaboration for you. I know that when I uh, write books or, you know, prepare courses to teach, um, I always wind up learning a lot more than any of my students or any of the people who read it are going to wind up learning because there is just that much to know and that much to learn. And when you get into something, uh, you know some of what you know and some of what you don't know. Uh, but it's sort of like every time you you turn over a rock, uh, you yeah, you see what's under there, but also going way down, there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down of a whole new set of things that if you're interested you can go and learn uh both as background and also uh well where is the frontier where is the cutting edge today i imagine that as you went through this um process of writing this book you discovered a number of aspects where even from the time when you started to when the book was finished um just the amount of development that occurred with those various aspects uh, was tremendous. So even if there wasn't all that much for you to learn in 2014, uh, by the time you got to 2022, 2023, um, there was a, a whole lot more for you to find out. Yeah, I'm. I have learned so much writing this book. is uh, is insane. Like I writing this book, like. I, the reason I did I wrote this book is that back in uh, 2014 I wanted to force myself to understand quantum computing very well. So I thought if I'm going to write a book about this field, for sure I'm going to understand quantum computing, quantum physics very well. So it was almost like a personal challenge. I wanted to understand quantum computing very well, doing all of the proofs, like all of the theorems, understanding 
uh, all of the theorems like in theorems in detail so so that I could explain these uh, concepts uh, to other people yeah that took a lot of time it was very difficult but uh, I, I'm very happy I did that and I think the book really uh, is a very valuable resource for anyone starting their career in this field. So if, uh, if you want to start, start a career in quantum computing, that's definitely like uh, a resource that you should consider. Let me ask you, Ricardo, this is a bit of a speculative question, but you know, we, we can see that there are going to be many instances where once we have functional large number of logical qubits, fast quantum computers, uh, we can see the use cases for all of them. Do you envision any future technology that might supersede or make quantum computers obsolete? Is there a future for computation that goes beyond classical computing and beyond quantum computing that might offer something even more powerful than what we think about today? Yeah, so this is a very good question. So uh, quantum computers, uh, uh, it is widely accepted that quantum computers are more powerful than classical computers. So uh, in the last uh, uh, 20 years or 30 years, other computational models have been proposed that uh, might be even more powerful than quantum computers, meaning that these uh, uh, technologies would be able to solve NP-complete problems in polynomial time, something that not even a quantum computer can do. However, every time that uh, these technologies, these ideas have been proposed, uh, it was uh, soon realized that you, these machines were not physical. So it was not possible to build these machines. So I can try to explain these in a, with a, a bit more technical uh, details. So there are like two big concepts in uh, complexity, complexity theory. One is the church Turing thesis, and one is the extended church Turing thesis. So the first thesis, the Church-Turing thesis, says that any uh, physical uh, computational model can be simulated by a Turing machine. So a Turing machine is just like your laptop, it's just like a classical computer. So a classical computer can simulate any other physical machine. So this statement is not saying anything about the speed of the simulation. How uh, much time, how time it takes to run this simulation. Or, or whether I need more bits than there are particles in the universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just saying, look, if you have like a sufficiently big uh, Turing machine, you can simulate any other physical machine. That's it. The extended church Turing thesis says instead that a uh, uh, classical machine, so a deterministic Turing machine, can simulate with uh, efficiently, can simulate with, in polynomial time, any other physical machine. Okay, so uh, if uh, uh, a quantum computer becomes available, and we can actually use a quantum computer to simulate the behavior of like molecules and other systems, then these thesis would be, in a sense, wrong. So 
But in a sense, quantum supremacy already showed that the extended church Turing thesis is violated, is not true, because uh, we have shown that a quantum computer can solve a classical problem much faster than any other classical computer in the world. So in this sense, the extended church Turing thesis is not true. We have built a quantum computer that was able to uh, solve a problem that a classical computer would have never been solved, would have never been able to solve in a polynomial time. Okay, uh, there are like other physical, uh, there are like there are other computational models that have been proposed in the last uh, 20 years or 30 years that uh, might be even more powerful than quantum computers. However, they might not be physical. So the most important word here is physical. You can come up with uh, computational models that are more efficient than quantum computers, but they are impossible to build. I am gonna give you like a very simple example. Suppose that, suppose that I build a machine, like a classical computer, that runs the first uh, operation in one second, the second operation in 0.1 seconds, the, the third operation in 0.01 seconds, the fourth one in 0.001 seconds. So the operations, they get faster and faster as I carry on the computation. So this machine would be able to solve uh, problems, uh, NP-complete NP problems in polynomial time. So this machine would be incredibly fast. Uh, however, this machine is not physical. It's not possible to build such a machine because uh, the gates are becoming so short that the uh, duration of each gate would be even less than a picosecond. And that is not even practical. You would uh, need a, 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 a big amount of energy to build such a machine. And uh, there are like even some limits posed by the Heisenberg uh, uncertainty principle that uh, would not even allow you to build such a machine. So the important thing to keep in mind is that anytime that you hear about like a new computational model model that would be able to solve NP-complete problems in polynomial time, you always need to answer this question. Is that machine physical? Can that machine be built? So for now, uh, I don't think there is like a concrete proposal for new uh, mo computational models that are even more powerful than quantum computers. Well, thank you. That was that was a really comprehensive answer to a, a challenging question. Uh, but it's 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 also uh, I should also probably say that never say never. Maybe like in one hundred years, two hundred years, we're gonna find like a more fundamental um, theory of nature that is even more fundamental than quantum mechanics, and we're going to discover that maybe it's even possible to build a computer that is even faster than a quantum computer. But from for now, uh, yeah, like I I don't see that. Well, that's really interesting, and thank you for being willing to speculate, but also forcing us to rein ourselves in and confront physical reality. Because if you're, no matter how beautiful or powerful your theory is, if it disagrees with reality, uh, it's not going to be of very much use. So thank you for a wonderful. 
guide through quantum computers, quantum information science, and where we are today and where we're looking ahead to with this fascinating field. Ricardo, before I let you go, um, I'd like to make sure everyone knows that they can get your book, Quantum Information Science, written by you, Ricardo Menente, and your co-author, Mario Mota, uh, from Amazon or Oxford University Press. Uh, and I'd like to ask you if you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with. I would say that quantum computing is definitely like a fascinating field. And if you're interested in this field, you should definitely follow this passion and learn more. I would say that quantum theory is a beautiful and elegant theory that it's uh, I think it's a shame not to like not to learn more about it. It's so elegant and fascinating fascinating that I would say that if you feel that this is your passion, you should definitely uh, learn more, find the resources and uh, yeah, and follow this passion. Well, thank you so much. What a lovely message. And thanks to you out there for listening to this episode of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Our podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd love to thank our sponsor once again, Avenues Online of Avenues the World School, uh, which you can learn more about at avenues.org SWAB. And I'd also like to give a shout out to every one of our Patreon supporters that supports us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chewist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Seagreen Mango, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech, LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, David Hibbets, David Wallach, George Church, Hirolamo Castaldo, James Franklin, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Kilia Opu, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Ralph Alwar, Chuck, Randall Slimak, Rick DeWitt, Ron Schiffman, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Benhead, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Cameron Sowards, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Diana Nevins, Dwayne Williams, Eric Zetterbaum, Flo, Fraser Kane, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, James Page, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Catherine S., Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bergeron, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Matt Reno, Michael Hall, Michael Prochota, Michael Savuto, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Owen Mann, Pam Harris, Paul Lester, Pavel Zuzelski, Phil Hallenborg, Philip Francis, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rob Thibodeau, Ron Lyle, Rushin Shaw, Steve Nordhoff, Stuart Lending, Terry McKeon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pierkarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Bang.